Welcome, Southbridge. I'm glad that you're here today. Are you glad to be here today? All right. Well, we're glad to have you. If you're a guest with us today, I want to welcome you and just tell you thank you so much for coming and worshiping with us this morning. If you wouldn't mind filling out in your worship program a little connection card, we would love to bless you with a gift. And what you do is you fill out that connection card, take it up to the first-time guest kiosk, and we have a gift. It's just our way of saying thank you for being here this morning. And uh, maybe you've been here before. This is your second week, third week, fourth week, and you've never filled that card out before. If you'd fill it out today, that would be a blessing to us. And we want to thank you today on game day, coming here and uh, being with us and worshiping Jesus this morning. So thanks a lot for doing that. And if you're a regular attender, we're glad to see you too. So thank you uh, so much for being with us this morning. And I know you come on a regular basis. If you don't serve on a regular basis, but you're a regular attender, I just challenge you to look in your worship program. There's some opportunities in there. Multiple teams are listed every week, and there might be one that uh, fits one of your desires, your niches, your gifts. And uh, we'd love for you to get together with some other folks and uh, meet some more people and serve those that are going to come some to hear about Jesus for the first time on Sunday morning and be a part of that. If you don't know where to go, I'll tell you a couple options. Uh, one is the setup team. They can always use people. So regardless of your gifting or skills, we'd love to have you there. Another one is uh, Bridge Kids. We'd love to have you in there, but if you don't like kids, we don't want you in there. So only if you like kids, we would love to have you in there. And they use a lot of volunteers every Sunday morning and uh, would love for you to be a part of that if you've been considering what you might do. And if you're not sure where you'd fit in a church or anything like that, we'd love for you to consider our Next Steps class. You can see the information for that and the worship programs coming up February 16th. Uh, which is a place you'll talk about gifting. We'll talk about all the different things that happen at our church, and we'd love for you to be a part of that if you've never been a part of that before, too. And there's lunch and some of those child care and all that stuff. You can read about that in the worship program. But today what we're going to do is we're going to continue in our series we've been doing. We've been going verse by verse to the book of Acts in a series we've called Movement. And if you haven't been with us, uh, Movement, what we mean by that is a group of people that are gathered around a common belief. And the common belief that we've been talking about is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which radically changes our lives. When you submit to the gospel, when you understand the grace of God and the forgiveness he offers, and you bow your knee to Jesus Christ, it should radically transform your life. It gives you new life and reconciliation, redemption, amazing stuff that should then lead to a life of radical obedience. And that's what the church is, a bunch of individual believers that are living in radical obedience to Jesus Christ, and then we come together corporately as the church, and that's the movement of God. And it should be people living in radical obedience so that the whole church would be known as people who live by faith and demonstrate the love of Christ to a world. And so that's what we should be experiencing. We talk about that from the book of Acts and how the Spirit of God gives us the power and the ability to do those things is what we've been talking about. We're going to continue today. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll get into the message this morning. Let me pray. Father... We come before you, and um, we want to meet with you today. Will you please show up here? Will you speak to us? Will you let your presence be known? Uh, will you speak into individual lives? Will you change our affections? Will you change our desires? Will you make us want and long for you more? Even those of us who do want you, and even those who do want to be intimate with you, God, will you give us a greater, a stronger passion for you? Will you change our affections so that we love the things of this world less and we love you more? that we'd want you, that we'd hunger and thirst after righteousness, that we'd come to you as poor in spirit, and then we'd see you. God, will you speak to us through your word? Will you speak through my lips? Will you give us your truth this morning? Be a refreshing drink to those who need that. Be, be a, a mighty God for those who need to know your sovereignty. Be the Prince of Peace for those who need your peace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, every once in a while, I think we all come to the point where we realize we could use a, a fresh start. Ever been in one of those conversations before where you don't like how the conversation's going? Maybe you say something and you wish you hadn't said it, or it's just kind of going in a direction you wish it wasn't going in. Wouldn't it be great if you kind of back up and redo that conversation to get a fresh start? Or, or you make a bad first impression, whether it's, you know, dandrift or whatever it was, you don't get a second chance, right? Wouldn't it be great if you got a second chance to make a first impression? 
I don't know what, what your growing up was like, and there's different ages and stuff that are represented here, but I remember when I was a kid, I used to play video games, and it didn't matter if I was playing, you know, Mario Brothers or sports double dribble, rubble, ribble, double dribble basketball game, if I missed a free throw in the first quarter, or if Mario, you bopped his head and lost a life too early, there was this wonderful feature on the video game, it was a reset button. So I don't know what you played growing up. It was Sega, Nintendo, PlayStation, Wii now, all the, all the different video games are out there. They all have this little reset button on it. If, you, if things aren't going the way you like it, you can just push the reset button. Wouldn't it be great in life if there was a reset button sometimes? Maybe in that job interview that's not going so well, like, oh, I, just shouldn't, I shouldn't have told them I just got fired. You know, Whatever it was that happens, you get reset. Or sometimes even in a relationship, it wouldn't be great to have that. Or for those of you who, who watch TV and you've got DVR as a feature on your television, isn't that kind of cool? How you'll miss something every once in a while, and you can rewind live television. That's kind of a neat feature. That's new for my generation. You, know, you watch this, you get a button where you can just skip back like 30 seconds or rewind it all if you want to. Wouldn't it be neat in life if you could rewind certain situations? Or if you could hit reset, and you ever think about if there was an area of life, you could do this, is there an area of life where you'd like to hit reset or where you'd like to rewind? And some of you, you may think of your greatest regret. That's a serious memory. We all have regrets. But maybe a circumstance that you found yourself in, you got yourself into, something you did, a decision you wish you hadn't made, if you could just redo one thing. Or maybe some of you, it's not a single decision. Sometimes we find ourselves... Or we look at a situation and we think, how did we get here? Maybe with your health or maybe in a relationship with a coworker or a boss or a spouse or your kids or somebody. And you think to yourself, how did it even get to this place? And it would be amazing, wouldn't it, to have a reset button or a rewind button where you could kind of un, you know, back up life and give it a second try? That would be a fresh start. And there's not a reset button. And there's not a rewind button. There's no remote control for life. But it is possible to have a fresh start. It's not quite as simple as just pushing a button, but we're going to talk about that today, how to have a fresh start. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, picking up where we left off last week in our series through the book of Acts. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And remember, we were looking at a sermon that the Apostle Peter was preaching. It was his first ever sermon, but it was the best sermon that he ever preached. It was a sermon that really got the church started. And what happened was, there was the day of Pentecost, is oftentimes what we refer to it as, is that God had given people a command, a commission. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be my witnesses, but it's impossible for them to do it. So in Acts chapter 2 and verses 1 through 13, he gives them the power, the ability to do it when he gives the Spirit. And what we saw, we, we talked about last week, was a, a picture of the reversal of Babel. And what happened in Babel is the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 is that people came together and they wanted to talk about how their name was great and show how great they were. And they spoke one common language, but God came in and confused their languages, put them all over the world because they were talking about their greatness. And then in Acts chapter 2, he reverses that. And he brings people from all over the world together and he has them proclaim his greatness and all the languages in the world. And what he's showing is that he's pouring out his spirit on people as Peter stood up and told these people from the prophet Joel that God's putting his spirit and everybody who places their faith in him and men and women and slaves and free and all kinds of different people. And that's news for us. That's a promise for us that we receive the Holy Spirit, the power to fulfill the commands that God's given us to fulfill. And Peter preaches this message to thousands of people. We know there's at least 3,000 there. But try and imagine what it was like to be this audience. Think about who they were. Some of these people were probably the very people that were there on Palm Sunday when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem and they laid down palm branches and they sang the song, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. 
which is probably some of those people were part of the same group that was outside of Pilate's palace when Pilate was trying to decide what to do with Jesus. And he came out washing his hands and saying, I find no charge with this man. What should I do? And in the crowd, the same people chant, crucify him, crucify him. Now, it's easy to judge those people and say, how the same people do those two things? But oftentimes our spiritual journeys are a roller coaster ride, right? And then those same people find themselves there for another religious festival on the day of Pentecost. And Peter stands up with the other 11 apostles and starts to preach this message. And he says to them, you killed him. You're guilty of his death. All the hope, all the promises that you're waiting for, they were coming in him and you murdered him. Now, if there was ever a group of people who needed a fresh start, it was these people. And look what Peter says to them. We'll pick up in verse 36 where he summarizes the whole sermon that he's just preached in verses 14 through 35. It's really the climax of the sermon. And then we see the people's response. Look at verse 36 with me. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so God made him Lord and Christ. You don't make him Lord and Christ. God already did this work. Here's what you did. You killed him. You're guilty. And look how the people respond, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Is there any hope? We killed the one that we hoped in, the one who's to fulfill all the promises. Are we done? Is it over? And then Peter tells them there's hope. Here's the hope. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the very power that you saw these people receive. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is great news, verse 39. This promise of a forgiveness in the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and for all whom the Lord our God will call. That includes you and me. And with many other words, Peter warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And so we have the first church with 120 people to start, and it turns into 3,000 after one day. So there's 3,120 believers that now know what it is to be forgiven, that now know what it is to have the Holy Spirit, that now know what it is to have a fresh start. Because think about where they were coming from. While they might not have taken those nails and put them in Jesus' hands, they were guilty because of their deception, because of their anger, because of their lust, because of their pride, they were guilty of putting Jesus Christ on the cross. They had rebelled against God. They had done the very thing that all of us do. And we do it in different ways. We're creative. You know, some of us are just overt sinners, and it's obvious, and people know. And we are self-centered. People know that we're self-centered. We use people. We indulge. We do all kinds of stuff. And that's kind of the overt, immoral sinner that's obvious. And then there's the moral sinners, which might be more popular amongst a church audience, where on the outside we look good. We're nice people. Uh, we might be more friendly than other people, and we might not shake our fist at God and, and do all the bad stuff, you know, the drink and go to the places and have the drug issues and all that other kind of stuff. But in our hearts, we don't live our lives based on the promises of God. We think, we think we know a better way. And we don't say, God, I know better than you, but we think when God tells us to do stuff, no, it'd be better. God, your life would really be better if you just bless my plan and we live according to that. And what that is, it's sin. Both cases are sin. And all of us sin. And that means all of us need a fresh start. And a fresh start is possible. And Peter tells us how in this passage. See, a fresh start requires a radical change. It's not just a simple change. A fresh start requires a radical change. And that's our first point today. 
And here's the problem with us for this point, is that we don't like change. And we've talked about this before as a church, since life change is a big thing for us and we want to connect people to Jesus for life change. We've talked about how just as humans, we're naturally resistant to change. You see it, a great illustration is when Facebook makes a change, but most of us don't like that. Or your email changes, most of us don't like that. And I was trying to do a little research on this this week and asking my kids. My kids are three years old to seven years old, the ones that I was talking to. And I said, how many of you like change? Two of them said no right away. And then one of them said, yes, if change means no rules. And I thought, as a dad, this is not going in a direction I want it to go right now. Then the other two said, yeah, like we like change too, if that's what you're talking about, dad. And then I don't know if you've ever been fishing before, but sometimes when you're fishing, you kind of let the line just kind of go for a while. And I thought, I'm going to let the kids run with this for a minute and see what they say. So then they start talking about all the rules they would undo if they could make changes. There'd be no bedtime. (laughs) Wild and crazy, right? No bedtime. We'd be able to eat all the candy in the house. We'd never have to clean our room. We'd never have to brush our teeth. If we did go to bed, then we could sneak out of our beds into another room in the house. It's like crazy. And so then I'm listening to it. I'm thinking to myself, so you wouldn't clean your room. You wouldn't clean yourself. You'd stay up really late and you'd eat really bad. That sounds like college to me. I'm just what it sounded like. And so they said that and I let them kind of go with it for a while and how exciting it would be and how fun and how great life would be. And then I told them how life would really work out. I said, what would happen is you wouldn't clean your room. You get bugs all over your room. That's not very nice, is it? And then you go in there after a while and you've eaten all that candy. You wouldn't be able to fall asleep when you actually want to. When you did want to, you'd have bad dreams, like scaring them, right? And then I said, when you'd wake up, you'd have a rotten mouth because you didn't brush your teeth. And so you'd have to get all the cavities filled by the dentist and they'd drill your teeth. Do you want to do that? Like life will be terrible. And I thought, this isn't helping me teach the church because you want change. And then I thought, wait a minute, though. That's just like us. That's the kind of change we do want. Because their hearts are wicked just like our hearts. And what they think is the same thing we think. That these rules or guidelines, commands, principles, call them what you want, aren't the best way to experience the best life. And life would really be better if I could undo those or skirt those or go around those and do things my own way. And what they don't realize is that as parents, we give them these rules, not because we're trying to make their lives miserable, but out of love because we want them to have the best life. And what we do as adults is the same thing with God. We don't want the commands. We don't want the, the promises. We don't want the, any of the guidelines, the principles, whatever you call them, the, the rules, because we think those are going to rob us of life. And we come up with different ways of skirting around them. Sometimes it's overt and it's obvious and we rebel and we shake our fist at God and we do what we want and we're going to show everybody. And then sometimes it's less obvious and we go to church and we're nice people and we probably even serve in places and maybe we're easing our conscience or maybe we're playing a game. Maybe we've deceived ourselves and we don't live according to the promises and we don't follow the commandments and we do our own thing and we live for ourselves and everything's about us and we're rebelling against God in both cases. The question is not whether or not you and I are sinners. We are. The question is what kind and what are you going to do about it? And Peter tells this crowd who's probably full of both moral and immoral sinners what to do about it. Think about them. They literally crucified Christ. Some of them didn't take nails, but some of them chanted, crucify him, crucify him. Days after yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. What a picture of us. And how one day we can be doing so well. And then it only takes a little influence from some peers, because that's what happened with them. Or our religious leaders get a little bit off, or, and we're not in tune with God. And that's where these people are at. And then Peter stands up and he tells them this. And he tells them about their guilt, and they feel the guilt. 
Look what happens. He summarizes the sermon. Verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. Christ, God made him Christ, and Lord, you killed him. You're guilty. And then Luke gives us insight into how they're feeling about this. The first part of verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, that's an interesting phrase. It only appears here in all of the New Testament. Cut to the heart. It conveys the idea that they believed what Peter was saying. So there's a belief here. There's an agreement that the stuff that Peter was preaching in verses 14 through 35 from the prophet Joel, from the prophet David, they said, that's our book. That's right. You know what? Your book said that you were going to kill him, and you still did it. And it shows not only do they believe it, but they feel something about it. And what they feel is guilt. That's what this phrase means, that they're cut to the heart, is that they're guilty and they feel the guilt of this. Now, guilt is something we don't like to talk about. A lot of times we'll skirt around it. Uh, we've got ways to psychoanalyze it so that we can kind of try and explain it away, that it's false guilt, that it's not real, that we shouldn't be feeling it. Well, why are you feeling it then? You're, you're still feeling it. And it's true. There is something the scriptures talk about as worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. And it's the kind of guilt that we have when really all we're afraid of is the consequences, the circumstances. We're going to be found out. We're going to be embarrassed. We're going to have to pay for the things that we did. That's not godly guilt. But godly guilt happens when we realize there's a problem between us and God. And it's a gift from God. See, guilt is a gift from God. It's kind of like pain. How pain, no one wants to experience pain, but pain's really a gift to us because without pain, we wouldn't realize the danger we're in oftentimes. You you put your hand on a hot stove and you feel pain, so you take it away. If you didn't feel pain, you'd leave your hand there, your hand would melt. That wouldn't be good. What guilt is, it's a warning sign. Kind of like pain is a warning sign that bad things are happening. Guilt is a warning sign that something's not right between you and God. Guilt is a gift from God. And a lot of times we think, because we live in an age of grace, this is a time of grace, the church age, the time of grace, the grace of God, we sing about it, we love it, it's amazing grace. We think because it's an age of grace that we shouldn't talk about guilt because we have a misunderstanding of grace, like it just means you ignore sin. You can't truly understand grace until you understand guilt. Take, for example, a story we oftentimes share about grace. It's John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It's the woman caught in adultery. What happens in this story, if you haven't read it, is that Jesus is a very popular teacher at this point in time. He's up teaching. A bunch of people are around, and in rush the teachers of the law, the Jewish leaders. And they're trying to trap Jesus, and they brought a woman, and the text says, caught in the very act of adultery. And so you imagine the scene that Jesus would be teaching. A group of people would be listening to his teaching from another scripture he was talking about. And these men come running in. They bring this woman. She's probably wrapped up in a sheet because she was caught in the very act of adultery. She's there. She probably experienced a shame, fear. These men are holding stones because the law says that she should be stoned for what she did. Probably guilt. There's no question that she is guilty. She was caught in the very act. That's not even what we're talking about. But it's interesting what Jesus does in the passage. When these men come in with this woman, it's like he pauses in his message and stoops down in the sand and just starts writing in the sand. There's all these people there, like, listening to the message. And these guys brought this woman. It's not like they don't have, haven't taken the attention away over here. And Jesus starts doodling, which is interesting because you could take it two ways. One, you could take it that Jesus doesn't know how to respond, so he's buying some time. Or two, he's trying to let these men, because the story is not really about this woman, it's about these men. He's trying to let these men gain some perspective on what's actually taking place here. And after a few minutes of him being pelted with questions and drawing butterflies in the sand, or whatever it was he was doing in the sand, Jesus stands back up and he gives us this famous verse, John chapter 8. You probably, if you don't know the Bible very well, you've probably heard this verse. 
When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He doesn't talk about her sin. It's obvious she's guilty. What is he doing now? He's dealing with their guilt. Because the problem for these men is that while they are guilty, they don't feel guilty. Can you imagine if you went on trial for a crime that you did and you told the judge, I I don't feel guilty? So what? You are. Probably one of the worst places you could be is to be guilty and not feel guilty. And what Jesus does next is interesting. He goes back to the sand. I don't know if he was building a castle or what he was doing down there, but he started playing in the sand again. And he gives these men a couple minutes to think about what's happening. Think about what Jesus could do. He could say to them, don't you realize your sin? First of all, let's not ignore the fact this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. You perverts. Like, what happened here? Who was watching her? Did you guys set this up? Was this a plan? Who went in there? Who caught her? Who who actually grabbed her out of the very act of adultery? We got an issue here. Oh, and by the way, also... All of the men are objectifying this woman. They don't care about her as a person. They're using her for their own gain, to prove their own argument, for their own selfish indulgence. That's sin. Or what about the very fact that they don't recognize their guilt? That shows their sin because they're self-righteous. And Jesus doesn't point out all these things. Instead, he goes back to the sand. He starts playing in the sand, and then he stands back up. And at this, those who heard began to go away, One at a time, as Jesus is playing in the sand, the first ones were the oldest ones, which I think is interesting. Was it because they sinned more? Was it because they were more sensitive to their sins? More mature? Maybe the young ones were so zealous and ready to throw those stones, they missed it until they started to see the older ones one at a time. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. There's no question she's guilty. And Jesus doesn't say to her, oh, don't worry about it. He doesn't condemn her. That's grace. But she knows her guilt. And all these men know their guilt. See, understanding guilt is key for understanding grace. Now try and imagine what it was like to be this audience in Acts chapter 2. Imagine worst case scenario for you is that someone accuses you of murder. Imagine you go to work tomorrow and some guys come into your office and they're wearing uniforms and they're asking for a name and it's your name. And they're looking for somebody because they committed murder. And they say, you're wanted in the case of, and they fill in the blank with who was it's murder. Now, most of you are thinking to yourself, that'd be bad. I'd have to get a good lawyer, but I didn't do it. Imagine you did it. Because they did. And the reason why they feel guilt is because of their sin. Now, sin's something we don't like to talk about, which I think is interesting because we all do it, but none of us like to talk about it. Isn't that kind of a weird dynamic? And we all sin, and we'll say, oh, we're all, you know, I'm human. Like, we say statements, but we don't want to talk about sin. You know why? It makes us feel guilty. The scripture talks about sin a ton. It says that we can enjoy it for a season. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25. And we all have experienced that, right? You can enjoy it for a season. But you know what else it says about it? All the language that's used about it talks about it being a bondage. It holds us, which is interesting when you think about sin because it always provides the promise that things will be good, like we'll have freedom, that we get to do what we want to do, right? And then we go and we temptation gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death and we're trapped, James chapter 1. And it holds us in a bondage. Jesus says everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Do you know what that means? That means we're all slaves to sin. We're all in bondage. You go through the scriptures and you read about how serious sin is. You get pictures like this. You'd be better off cutting off your hand and gouging out your eye than to continue on in your sin. Okay, so you'd be better off limbless and eyeless than to continue on in your sin. That's how bad sin is. 
And then the scripture tells us that we all do it. And 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8 says, if we claim we don't do it, that we're liars and we deceive ourselves. So it's interesting to me that we don't like to talk about the very thing that we all have in common. Isn't that, when you find something in common with people, then isn't that like a bridge there or something to talk about? And we don't like to talk about sin because it makes us feel guilty. And we don't like to talk about guilt. But we all have to come to the answer, what do we do with our guilt? Because we all have it. Unless you're a sociopath or so hardened by your sin that we should be terrified for you, then we all experience guilt. So what do you do with it? That's what the people in this passage are asking. They were cut to the heart, verse 37, and then the second part says, and so they said to Peter and the other apostles, because his other 11 apostles are standing there with him, what do we do? What do we do? There's a desperation in their voice. Like, tell us there's hope. Tell us there's some way. Tell us it's not over yet. Tell us that we can have a restart. And Peter tells them what to do because there is an option. Now, there's a lot of stuff we try to do with our guilt. And you think about it, what do you do with yours? And I'm asking you whether your background is religious, not religious, even if you're an atheist, you still have to answer this question. So if you're an atheist and you're here today, maybe you came with a friend or you've been checking us out for a little while, what do you do with your guilt? If you're a Christian, what do you do with your guilt? Because we all sin. That's clear. Well, almost everybody will admit that, that we all sin, we all blow it. So we all have guilt. So what do we do with that guilt? Well, if you go back to the first sin, you see how people cope with guilt. You see Adam in the garden and what he does. And what happens after he and Eve sin is they run and they hide, which is an interesting response considering God made the place so he knows what all the hiding spots are, right? He also can see everything, and so it's not like they're really hiding. And then what a feeble attempt. They put fig leaves on. (laughs) Like you couldn't come up with something better than that, really. And they don't even do a good job hiding, but they're hiding, and then God comes looking for them. And he says something to Adam. Isn't that what we oftentimes do with our guilt, too, that we kind of hide? We hide sin. We pretend like it's not there. We pretend like it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't really exist. Maybe we'll say the general vague statements. We don't really want to talk about it. We hide our sin. It's one way that we try to deal with guilt. Then when God speaks to Adam, Adam then does what we're oftentimes so good at, blame shifting. So who told you you were naked? What's going on here? The woman. Yep, she did it. It was the one. She... And aren't we good at going like this? You talk to, if you come talk to me about my sin, I can talk to you about a lot of people's sin. So you come talk, I come talk to you about your sin. You could say, yeah, but so-and-so, you know, if you have, do you know what they're doing? The reason why I do this, though, is because my parents. And the reason why, it's because of these circumstances. This, we're real good at shifting the attention. That's exactly what Adam's doing. He's shifting the attention. This woman, oh, by the way, who you gave me, God, there's some boldness. We don't usually do that. Now, we might say things like, God made me this way. This is my environment. These are my circumstances. We passively will blame God for our sin. It takes quite a hardness to get to the point where we'll point our finger at him. Now, Adam's never had these feelings before. There's never been sin before. He doesn't have any idea how to deal with this stuff. Everyone has to decide how they're going to deal with it. There are a bunch of false ways to deal with it, and there's one good way. Guilt is real. Sin is real. And there's one real way to remedy it. It's not by living a more moral life. It's not by pushing reset. If you push reset, just imagine, you still shot the free throw, you still lost, you still had the conversation, the interview, the relationship, all those things. Now you're just doing them again. There's still the stuff from all that. You can't undo that. There's no way you can be good enough to do that. There's no way you can undo the things that happened before. 
And so none of that stuff works. That's what we oftentimes try. That's what we wish and we fantasize would be reality. There is one real remedy to guilt and to sin. It's forgiveness. It's the only real remedy. I read this quote this week by R.C. Sproul, put up on the screen. He says, we are debtors who cannot pay our debts. We cannot live well enough today and tomorrow to atone for the past. The only thing that will take care of real guilt is real forgiveness. The great news is that's available. And what's happening here in this passage in Acts chapter 2 is when these people are yelling out, Brothers, what shall we do? Is there anything we can do? How should we respond? I would imagine some of those people were there at the cross when Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And they're asking the question, how do we get that? How can we have real forgiveness? And Peter tells them in verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you will receive the power and the ability to overcome that sin again in the future. And you'll have forgiveness for the very sin that happened. But what do you have to do? First thing he says, repent. Repentance is key. What is repentance? Let me first tell you what repentance is not. Repentance is not when you feel guilty about something, you just kind of wallow in the guilt, feel bad about it for a while. Every once in a while, I'll meet people that will talk about, well, I didn't, I didn't do anything right away because I was going to kind of just let it sink in and process what was happening there. That's called penance. That's not repentance. Penance is that you're paying for your sin. Now, Jesus Christ already paid for your sin. He already dealt with that. You don't need to add to that. And you can't. You can't live good enough to undo the things that we've done. It's not possible. And so it's not feeling bad about what you've done. That's not repentance. Repentance is not asking for forgiveness. A lot of times people get these things confused. So you go to God and you say to him, forgiveness. You confess your sin. You're acknowledging it for what it is. And you, you say it's part of the conversation about your sin. It's a requirement, but repentance is a different thing. A lot of times what you'll see is that people who get this confused, what they do is they'll say that they've repented because they've asked for forgiveness, and they continue to go back to the same thing over and over again. They miss the repentance part. And the scriptures talk about this in the Proverbs. I believe it's Proverbs chapter 26, and Second Peter talks about it too. It says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so does a fool to his folly. That's oftentimes what we do when we get repentance confused with forgiveness. See, what repentance is... It's a radical change. It's the radical change that we're talking about when we say that a fresh start requires a radical change. Repentance is a radical change. And the idea of the word repentance is that you have to turn. And then what's happened is, is that we've turned to something other than God. We've turned to believe in something other than God's promises, thinking we know a better way, that there's a way to skirt the commands, skirt the principles, do our own thing. Sometimes it's rebellion, it's overt, and it's obvious. Sometimes it's not as overt, not as obvious. But we're going in our direction, and we have to turn to God. That's the radical change. It's a gift from God that you would even want to do that. Second Timothy tells us that, that repentance is a gift from God because he's pricked your heart with guilt, godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And it's a work that he does in your heart to show you there's something wrong between you and him, and then you turn to him. It's internal, it's external, it's both. It's a work he does in your heart, but it has results in your life. Practical results in your marriage, in your church going, in the community, at your work, in all your relationships. Repentance is a radical change, and it's something that's been preached through the whole scriptures. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus preached it. You look at the first sermons that Jesus preached. You look at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. It tells us that he went about, after that point, preaching, the kingdom of God is near. Repent, because the kingdom of God is near. He tells his disciples that you're going to preach a message of repentance. 
In Luke chapter 24 and verse 47, he tells Peter and these very apostles, he says, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And what's happening here is that Peter's fulfilling that commandment as he's preaching repentance. And how great to have Peter be the one to do it, huh? Especially when you think about his story. For those of you who know his story, when we, if I even talk about Peter, what people automatically start to think about is his failure, which is interesting because he has so many victories. He preaches the sermon that gets the church started, but that's not what we remember him for. We remember him for his failure, I think, because we can identify with that. And you look at Peter's life, what a picture, not just conveying information in his sermon, but what a picture of repentance. There's a conversation that Jesus has with Peter in Luke chapter 22 that I think is so insightful. And what happens is that Peter tells, or Jesus tells Peter, there's stuff happening you don't even see, Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Huh? Satan's talking about me? Like, that's what I'd be thinking if I was Peter. What are you talking about here? In other words, there's stuff happening, Peter, you don't see. And I'm going to tell you something what the Scripture teaches all of us is that we have an enemy, and he wants to steal, kill, and destroy us. And so he wants to sift you as wheat, too. He wants to ruin your life. He wants to ruin your marriage. He wants to ruin your friendships. He wants to ruin your job. He wants to ruin your testimony. He wants to destroy you. And what he promises you is sin, which will then hold you in bondage, and you'll be trapped. It's not the best life. But we get deceived, and we turn, and so did Peter. It's interesting what Jesus says to him, because this is before he denies Jesus. He says that that Satan's asked to sift you. He says, but I've prayed for you. Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, what? But Jesus prayed I wouldn't fail, and he's saying, but he knows that he's going to fail. Turn back? Turn back from what? Well, see, what's happened, Peter, is that you're going to go your own way. You're going to think you know what's best. You're going to think you can control results, and you're going to turn away. But when you turn back, because he knows he's going to turn back, too, he says, then i got a job for you to do. Strengthen your brothers. And we see what happens with Peter is that he fails. He blows it. He denies he knows Jesus. He denies he was ever with him. He calls down curses from God three times. And afterwards, he realizes he did exactly what Jesus told him he was going to do. And it breaks his heart. And he weeps bitterly. He feels the guilt. And then we see, and you can read about it on your own, in John chapter 21, Jesus restores him. He says, do you love me, Peter? He says, yes. You know I love you. He asked him three times. He denied him three times. He says, then feed my sheep. And then we see in this passage, it's the very thing he's doing. He's standing here and he's preaching to them a gospel of repentance because he knows it. He didn't just talk about it. He knows what it is to repent. He knows what it is to be restored. He knows what it is to be forgiven. And so he's pleading with these people and he's warning these people and he's telling them, you need to repent too. And so I just ask you this question, do you need to repent? What do you do with your guilt? Because we all have it. And if you do something other than repent, when you have the guilt then you're doing the wrong thing. Maybe you shift the blame. Maybe you try and stuff it and hide it and don't deal with it. Try to just avoid it and not think about it. It'll go away after a long enough period of time. You think you you explain it away, psychoanalyze it, and talk about how it's false guilt. It's not real. I shouldn't be feeling it. It's my parents' fault. It's not that big of a deal because other people have bigger issues, right? So what about you? Getting angry with your kids? Why don't you repent? You said something a few years ago and it really hurt somebody. You don't want to bring it up because you don't want to hurt them again, right? No, you need to repent. You need to deal with it. You're stuffing it. You're hiding it. Is it because of somebody else's fault? No, somebody else does it worse? No, you've got to deal with your stuff. And maybe your parents were a certain way, or maybe the circumstances were this, but you're accountable and you're responsible for the decisions that you've made. And so repent. It's a requirement of a fresh start. Don't you want the fresh start? Peter's telling them here, good news. Peter doesn't need to do this for his benefit. He's already experienced it. 
He's telling them, for your benefit, this is what you need to hear. Repent, and he says, not only is repentance a requirement of a fresh start, but so is a commitment. And that's our second point, that a fresh start requires a commitment. And if you think about it, repentance in itself inherently implies a commitment because you've turned from the thing you were committed to, going your own way, doing your own thing, and you've turned to God. That's a commitment in and of itself. You look at the guys that are standing here, the disciples, Peter and the other 11 apostles, and as they stand there, they're a picture of commitment. Everyone who actually followed Jesus and how amazing Jesus' ministry and his life and who he was, he only had 120. But all of them had made a commitment. They had turned from fishing businesses, which means they turned from their security, they turned from their safety, they turned from the relationships they knew to follow Jesus. They turned from their tax collecting business, which was prosperity, to follow Jesus. They left their nets, they left their stuff, they followed Jesus Christ. And then here Peter, a guy who knows that message, says to a Jewish audience, not only repent, but it says be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's a big deal, especially for a Jew. Now, baptism wasn't new for them. Jews had baptisms. Some people don't realize that. You think that maybe Christians came up with baptism. That's not true. There are multiple religions that have baptism. And Judaism was one of them that was familiar with baptism before the Christian baptism. The big deal about this is it was in the name of Jesus Christ. See, for the Jews, oftentimes they do a ceremonial cleansing, and they would baptize. The word literally means to dip. They would dip down in the water, and it would be like a ceremonial cleaning. And so they had tubs for doing this for multiple people all around the temple. But baptism was also part of conversion for Judaism. But it was usually reserved just for Gentiles. And what the Gentile was doing is the Gentile was saying they were cutting their ways of their old way of life to now live in a new way of life, the Jewish way of life. And you hear us talk about that kind of thing when we do baptism at, at Southbridge. We talk about that it's a public identification with a new association. And when we baptize people, based on Romans chapter 6, we dip them down in the water, buried with Christ in baptism, and then raised to walk in a new way of life, a way of following Jesus Christ now. Now, imagine what it would be like for a Jew to do that. I'm walking away from my old Jewish way of life. Not that they couldn't be Jewish anymore, but I'm no longer based on, I'm no longer living my life based on that I've got to obey all the law, listen to the religious teachers, bring the sacrifices. Instead, I'm walking a new way of life where I'm identifying with Jesus Christ, the very man that my religious leaders killed. See, it's hard for us to fathom the commitment that these people were making at this point. This was traumatic. This was serious that Peter would stand up and say to them that this is what they need to do. Try and imagine for a moment, which is hard for us because we know how the story goes, right? I already read the verses. 3,000 of them get baptized. You continue to read the book of Acts. They turn the world upside down. Now there is persecution. We'll read about that in chapter 4 and chapter 5. People do get killed in chapter 8. But overall, when we read the book of Acts, we look at it like victory. Think about for a minute. Imagine you don't know anything that happens after this moment. You're one of the Jewish people that's sitting there listening to this message. The most powerful men in the world have killed Jesus Christ. You don't know what they're going to do to the guy who's standing up and preaching about him right now. Much less to you if you identify with that guy and with Jesus. You don't know if your boss hears this. Are you going to still have a job? What about your friends? Are they going to want to talk to you? Your family? Are they going to kick you out? It might cost you your life. You see, what Peter's saying here, when he tells these people, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, saying you need to cut ways with your old way of life and make a new identification with Jesus. And that's a costly commitment. Now, we've got to address something with this text. It says here in verse 38, and some people will use this. It's a false teaching, but some people will use this to say that you have to be baptized in order to be a Christian or to be saved or to be born again, whatever different language they want to use. That You have to be baptized in order for that to be reality. 
The verse, if you just plainly read the verse out of context, it sounds like it says that. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. So you get the idea that baptism is necessary for forgiveness because of the way this verse reads by itself. That would be pulling it out of context, though, of the commitment that's being asked for here. That's why Jesus talks to this crowd about this baptism is because of the commitment. For us to use this verse like that would be the same as if I took the passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 18, the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and say, in order for you to be a Christian, you've got to sell all your stuff. Because you read that passage, and what happens in that passage? If you don't know it, Luke chapter 18, there's a rich guy who comes to Jesus, and he says, you know, Lord, you know, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, here's the deal. If you can't tell somebody how to be saved at that point, you've got problems, right? Like, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? This guy's ripe, he's ready, he's there. Jesus does something interesting. He says to him, obey all the commandments. Now, Jesus knows the prophet Isaiah. He knows that Romans is going to be written. and says there's no one righteous, no, not one. No one keeps all the commandments. He's not saying this is really how you do it. He's trying to point out this guy's guilt. But the guy responds to him and says, I've done that. Never murdered, honor my parents, I don't steal. I've done all that stuff. So the guy's overly confident in his flesh. Now, Peter was at that point at one time in his life. It didn't go very well. And so Jesus is trying to point out to this guy that he's not where he thinks he is. He knows the guy's rich, and so he says to him, go sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, which is interesting. He doesn't say bring the money to me. He says, give the money to the poor, then come follow me. And the guy goes away sad because he loves his stuff. (laughs) And what a powerful statement that would be for us as Americans, more powerful than saying that you need to get baptized, wouldn't it be? If, If someone said to you, you have to give up all your stuff, that would be tough. We don't ever pick this one, though. See, what Peter's talking about here, he's not talking about money. He's not talking about economics. He's not talking about water. He's talking about commitment. And when you come to Christ, that's a commitment. It should be. I know it's not for some because in modern theology, this isn't what the Bible teaches. It's not what Peter's preaching. You won't find this in any sermons in the Bible. But what oftentimes gets preached in churches is that you can add Jesus to your life and then you'll be all set. Just keep coming to church, add Jesus, have a better marriage, have a better family, have better finances, have better principles that you live by, and you've never surrendered your life to Christ. You still worship the same false gods. You've never repented. You've never turned. You've never experienced this commitment. And you wonder why there's no power, because you don't have the gospel. It's a false gospel that's been sold. There's no spirit with that either, by the way. It's just a more moral version of life. It's not what Peter's preaching about. What Peter's preaching about is something that requires a commitment, a whole life commitment. And that's why he says to this Jewish audience, you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not required for salvation, because if it were, then Peter would talk about it in other sermons, but you don't see it in any of his other sermons. In fact, you can read a couple chapters later in Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. He talks about the gospel. He never mentions baptism. It says, and God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. So God did the work. You're guilty. Same message, right? In the verse 31, here's what you do. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. Then he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. No mention of baptism. Different message. Same gospel. And baptism wasn't a part of it. Must you be baptized to be a Christian? No. If you're a Christian, must you be baptized? Yes, or else you're disobedient. It's a very important teaching. That's why Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 28 when he's teaching his disciples. You tell them you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, then you're a disobedient Christian. I'm trying to be as clear as I can. That's disobedience. The first step after you trust Christ is that you get baptized. But you can be a Christian and not be baptized because it's repentance. It's coming to a place where you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. It's the gospel.
For them, he's showing them. It requires this commitment. For you, I just ask you, what commitment does it mean for you? And some of you need to commit your lives to Christ. Bow your knee to him and ask him to be your savior. Some of you might need to recommit to Christ. You've trusted Christ, but you've kind of veered off and you've gone your own way and you need to repent. You need to turn back to him. Some of you might need to make commitments in other areas. Commit to break off a relationship that's leading you away from God. Commit to turn from that sin. Commit to, and you fill in the blank, with whatever God would speak to your heart by the power of his spirit. Peter says here that this requires a commitment. And then he goes on. He gives great news in verse 39. Verse 39, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized in verse 38. I'm sorry, in verse 39 he says, The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, that's the Gentiles, and for all whom our Lord our God will call, that's you, that's me. And then look at verse 40. I love verse 40. With many other words, he, Peter, warned them and he pleaded with them. And here we see that Luke doesn't write down everything that Peter said in that sermon. He tells him he continued to go on, and he warned them, and he probably went back to things like verse 23, verse 36, that you killed God. You crucified him. It's confrontational. Warning is confrontational. He probably did the Proverbs. There's a way that seems right to man, and in the end it leads to death. You're going that way. He's warning, like a warning sign. But he's also pleading. And pleading's not warning, and it's not yelling, and it's not confrontation. It's almost like begging. Like, look, this is for you and for your kids and, and for other people that will see it. And so they realize, I don't need this. And maybe Peter shared his story. He says, listen, this is for everyone. This is for those that think that they're too bad to ever experience this. It's for you. And it's also for those of you who are so misled into thinking you don't need it. You think you're too good. And you're so prideful. If you would just get it, it's even for you. It's for everybody that will repent, everybody that will commit. And he warns them and he pleads with them. And then we see the response. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And 3,000 were added to the number that day. And that's how they responded. And the question is for us, how will we respond? Because this message by Peter, it wasn't just for that audience. It's for you and it's for me. So do you need to repent? Do you need a fresh start? Because that's a requirement of a fresh start. You need a new beginning. There's no reset button. There's no rewind button. But there is repentance and there is real forgiveness. And it's offered to you today. So if you need to make a commitment to Christ, you need to repent. We want to give you an opportunity to do just that. We're going to bow our heads bow our hearts before the Lord and you close your eyes. I'm going to give you a couple moments to pray. I'll begin us in a time of prayer and the worship team is going to come. We're going to sing a couple songs as we conclude today. And if you need to remain seated while we sing those songs even, you're welcome to do that. Some of you need to trust Christ as your Savior today. You can do that today. If you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, what you do is you acknowledge that sin. We all have it. Acknowledge your sin and your guilt and decide you're going to stand face to face with that guilt. And you're going to deal with it. And the only way to really deal with it is to ask for forgiveness. And that forgiveness comes through Jesus Christ who died on the cross to pay for those sins already. You can't pay for them. You can't be good enough. And so he offers you forgiveness. You have to receive it. And you receive it by bowing your knee to him and surrendering your life to him. That's the commitment you need to make. Others of you may need to make other commitments. Some of you might need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. We'll be baptizing again here in the near future. I don't know the date exactly yet, but you can mark on your connection card that I want to be baptized. You're a Christian and you haven't made that stand where you're publicly identifying with Jesus Christ, then you can make that today. You can acknowledge that you want to do that today by marking it on your connection card. And we're going to bow our hearts, bow our heads, give you a moment of reflection, repentance. We've got a response team that will be here, uh, both male and female folks that would love to pray with you. If you want to pray with one of them during the song time, if you want to pray with one of them, even during this repentance time, uh, you want to ask a question about Scripture, they're here. They would love to pray with you. They'd love to open the Scriptures with you. You just have a burden. No one's going to judge you for coming. You're welcome to come down here. But each one of us, let's just go before our Father right now and pray. Our Father, we come before you. 
I pray for my friends. I am so thankful for you that you long to demonstrate your love for us through your son, Jesus Christ, that you desire to forgive us, that you want us to turn to you, that you work in our hearts, that you give gifts like guilt, and you give gifts like conviction, and you give gifts like forgiveness. And I pray for my friends who need that today. I pray for myself as I come before you today. And God, I just pray that you convict our hearts of the things that need to be convicted of. I pray that you'd speak to us and the circumstances that need to be spoken into. God, I pray you'd be incredibly personal to us right now as you speak to us. Speak about our circumstances. Speak about our relationships. Speak about our relationship with you. And those of us who need to be turned to you, turn us to you. Those of us who need to make new commitments, lay those on our hearts as we commit to you. I'll give you a few moments just to continue to pray to the Lord. Then, Jad will lead us in some worship.